This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with the 33rd Undersecretary of the Navy and former Acting Secretary of the Navy, the Honorable Thomas Modley. They discuss the overall U.S. Naval Force structure, including the 355-ship fleet, and what we need for today's challenges. They also touch on Modley's career in the Navy and his new book entitled Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. Thomas Modley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, congrats on your book, Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. Uh, Of course, talking about your service in the Department of Navy uh, during the Trump administration, but also uh, really great insights uh, beyond uh, your time serving inside the Pentagon, uh, thoughtful uh, in terms of uh, thinking about the U.S. Navy um, and more broadly U.S. national defense. we're a Naval Academy graduate, 1983. It's a good year here at the Reagan Institute. We like we like that period. Um, and maybe we'll just do a quick kind of discussion in your your background because it you know really does inform as your book outlines uh, your approach uh, when you had the opportunity to to lead uh, the Department of Navy. Uh, what got you to the Naval Academy? That's a really good question. I I uh, if you looked at the colleges I applied to senior year in high school, uh, they basically had no rhyme or reason to it all. Um, I went from applying to Amherst College, to Haverford College, to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, where I grew up. My mom was on the faculty there. Um, but I had an uncle that lived in the D.C. area, and he said, I should, t- I should take a look at the Naval Academy. And so I took a visit to the Academy and just was very enamored by the entire uh, feeling of the place. It just felt... Uh, like very different, very distinct. I had been drawn uh, also to the idea of serving. My parents were both uh, immigrated from Eastern Europe after uh, World War II when, when the Soviets had creeped into both Yugoslavia and Hungary and made it quite oppressive for them. And so I had a really profound appreciation for for the military and what it did to give my parents a new life here. And so um, to me, serving was... Uh, not something I had to struggle with too much. And so I applied and I got in. And when I got in, I was, it was sort of like, uh, it was sort of a fait accompli. I figured I'd go try it. And if I liked it, I'd stay. And if I didn't, I could always uh, explore other options. And you graduated the reference in 1983. Uh, who spoke at your graduation? You, you hit on this in the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ironically, uh, John Lehman was our, our speaker at graduation. I've got a couple of pictures of me shaking his hand uh, at graduation from both directions with his back and then my back. And uh, uh, my illustrator used one of those pictures in the in the book itself. So. And by a very cool feature in your book is your illustrator. You, you call your illustrator out and, and vectors and uh, uh, for our listeners and viewers, you ought to check it out. That was a, a nice element that perhaps you don't get in every memoir or uh, policy book. Um, so that was a nice addition. Now, in 1983, how did you view Secretary of the Navy John Lehman? That was a really consequential time. Uh, he was in the heart of the the buildup. Obviously, the 600-ship Navy was a centerpiece of that buildup. He was a young, uh, according to some brash, Secretary of Navy. Uh, how did you view him back in the day? Well, you have to under, yeah, Roger, understand, like for a lot of us coming into the Academy in this 1979, we were still sort of post-Vietnam hangover with respect to the military. And I, I think I talk about this in the book. I mean, they were 
places in Annapolis, you just would not go um, because there was a level of hostility towards people in uniform still. And that transformation, that the, the the way it changed, the way the public viewed the military um, changed so substantially from the time I started in '79 to the time I graduated in '83, and I I give you know almost 100% of the credit to President Reagan and the team that he brought in, and how they just changed the tone, uh, how they changed um, they they changed their approach to the military and. The greatest beneficiary of that, I believe, was the Navy um, because of Secretary Lehman's leadership and his ability to to take a pretty bold um, plan, um, you know, actually proclamation and turn it into a plan and then get that into reality. And so we, we you know, we all benefited from that uh, just in an incredible way. My friends and I reminisce about this all the time, like how when we were junior officers in the Navy, this was 19, uh, you know, 83, 84, we were in flight school in Pensacola and John Lehman was a, was a, was an A6, uh, I think bombardier navigator who yeah, he's a reservist. Yeah. Would like show up, <laughs> you know, I used to see him at the old club at Oceana and Virginia beach. And he was, it was just a very cool, uh, vibe at that time. It just was everything, everything seemed to be on the uptick. Um, the Navy was getting a lot uh, more positive recognition. And of course we were getting a lot more budget dollars. So that was, that was good for us too. Um, but yeah, we, we, we reflect back on that about how that time frame was so unique in American history. And we were, we were very fortunate to have been on active duty during that time. In 1984, I was in flight school in Pensacola when President Reagan won re-election with 49 states. I mean, I can't, I mean, to even think about that ever happening again is almost hard to imagine that that could happen. Um, but uh, given our current politics, I know we go through cycles, but um, it's just hard to imagine that that that, that happened. Um, but at any, you know, it was, uh, people were very optimistic at that time. And uh, even given that optimism, I don't think anyone could have predicted that within three to four or five years that the, that the Soviet Union was going to crumble and that, you know, my relatives who still lived in Hungary would, you know, would have freedom again. And, you know, no, none of us thought that. Um, so that's so how transformational it was. Yeah, I want to get to this a little bit because this transformation, it wasn't just in terms of more ships, but as you referenced, it was uh, this, this move from shame to pride in the military that you felt across the country, which is the sort of thing that can only come uh, with the leadership of a president, of, of a commander in chief. Um, curious to get your view. We've done some polling at the Reagan Institute with our national defense survey, and we've seen this precipitous decline over the past four or five years since we started the polling in terms of trust and confidence in the military as an institution. It's still, the most trusted of the institutions, if you look at I don't know, the Supreme Court or the Congress or the presidency, uh, but it's gone down substantially mm -hmm. uh, for reasons our listeners and viewers can intuit. But as you reflect your time inside the Pentagon, serving the Trump administration, working in the Department of Navy, leading that department, what's your sense of the confidence uh, American people should have in our military and the, and the U.S. Navy? Well, I think I think that regardless of whatever decline we've experienced over the past, you know, several years, um, and even you know, a lot of this started um, post 9/11 for the Navy's perspective, because those those conflicts, those uh, you know, the quote unquote global war on terror, which I was never a fan, fan of giving it a moniker like that, but it was that. Um, 
it was heavily Army and heavily um, Marine Corps in terms of who were taking the brunt of it. And actually, in a large sense, the Marine Corps almost got detached from the Navy. I mean, they're supposed to be there to be part of the naval force. Um, but I think because of that, uh, this started a long time ago where a lot of resources got diverted away from the Navy. And I think sort of maritime strategy and the requirement to sustain a, a shipbuilding base and uh, infrastructure in the country really eroded. And it's not the kind of thing you can just flip a switch and change. Um, so um, for me, uh, I was excited to be in the position I was in because I was, at least from my little corner of the world uh, in the Pentagon, I was really trying to push to, to, to get us back on track in terms of investing more in the Navy. Um, but there were some very strong headwinds against that. So, um, but I think generally the, the question you started with, which is about sort of the trust and confidence people have in the, in the military, I think that... Um, I, you know, it's a dual-edged sword in some sense, and that's not a pun. I mean, I just, I think that we should always have a healthy skepticism of all big government institutions, particularly ones that have a lot of power so and uh, a lot of lethal power. So to me, I don't think it's horrible. I, I'm less concerned about trust and confidence than I am, or, or than I am in sort of respect. Um, and I think if, if people's respect for the military starts to erode, I think then that's a, that's, that's a real problem for the country. Um, uh, yeah. I wonder, I mean, in my mind, I, I kind of look at them as interchangeable in, in terms of the, you know, respondent, you know, if you respect an institution, you're going to have, you're going to trust them. If you don't, uh, you probably will not. Um, so I, I, I can almost see them as interchangeable. It's an interesting distinction. I wonder, you know, maybe, perhaps we should pull a thread on that in our, in our next survey, uh, because I agree with you, respect is essential. Mm -hmm. It is. And, um, you know, there's lots of reasons why it hasn't, you know, it's been politicized in a lot of ways. And um, that's very, very unfortunate. But I also think um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, I, I've been you know, in pre preparing for this discussion. I've been reading some of the President Reagan's speeches and, and getting a sense for, you know, how he constantly and consistently went back to the, the standard American principles and and a shared common history. And uh, I think that uh, I believe it was in his I believe it was in his farewell address. He talked about his concerns about that eroding uh, over time, unless we're constantly uh, um, uh, making people aware of it. And when I used to go out and speak as the under and the acting secretary, I used to talk about all these things that were on my mind that, you know, kept me up at night. And and, you know, you can go through a whole list of things. I called I called them the thundercloud issues. Yeah, the uh, thunder. Yeah, that, that was cool. Because that was the undersecretary of Navy, right? This is your 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 approach, uh, you know, to to speaking to the public audiences and, and right. your. your well, my, my nickname is the undersecretary is the under. Everyone calls you the under. Right. And um, I would just go out and give speeches and my staff just became accustomed to saying, oh, you're going to go out and give another TED talk. I said, well, no, my name's not Ted. Um, my, <laughs> my name's the under. So let's just call them thunder talks. And then I would create this thundercloud of issues that, that were on my mind that I thought should be on everybody else's mind. And, uh, I talked about this. I mean, it's a long list. I, I looked at me in the book. You have about, you know, 20, 20 or so. Give us, give us a one or two that's top of mind for you right now in terms of your, your thunder talks. Well, I think the adversaries was one of the big ones that, that popped up there. Um, I think at the time there was a lot of, you know, the new national security strategy come out. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if 
people in the administration were a fan of me saying this, but, you know, I didn't view necessarily China and Russia and some of these other countries as competitors. I mean, there are adversaries at this point, at this stage of the game. They've migrated from being, you know, true economic competitors or global competitors. It's, it's more than that now. They're adversaries. And I would talk a lot about the things that they were doing or the things that they were attempting to do. I mean, and remember, Roger, this is 2017, 2018, and you see all that stuff coming to fruition now. Um, yeah. And so um, so that was- well, it's, it's one of the great, just to, just to harp on the adversary, in particular, as, as you emphasize in the book, and no doubt what you're referencing with respect to China, I mean, that was a fantastic consequential contribution of the Trump administration. Their national security strategy and their national defense strategy really departed from prior administrations, Republican and Democratic, in terms of saying, no, China is the adversary, the pacing threat, the near peer competitor, all those words, fancy, you know, words of, of, of defense strategy. But in the, the day, that's the problem. And, and the public followed. But prior to the Trump administration, you did not have that, right? That's that's true. Um, but I will tell you, Roger, well, as well, that there there were many times uh, that I had meetings in the Pentagon where I would say, why aren't we calling these people adversaries? And I would get chastised for that um, because there, there was, you know, no, there are competitors. If we label them as adversaries, then they're going to that means something to the Chinese. That means that it's inevitable that we're going to go to war with them. And I'm like, OK, you know, that this is semantics um, and it was a semantic game. And I felt it was much more important for to just to be frank with people about it. And so that was one of the things that were in my thundercloud that I would talk about. And other things were sort of more mundane to 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 people who don't really understand the inner workings of the Pentagon. You know, some of the things that your father was involved in when he was the comptroller, the financial management challenges that we have um, in the department, the inability to get an audit, the inability to know where our stuff is. And, 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 and we, you know, we were finding warehouses that we didn't even know we owned that had parts in it that we didn't know we owned that were holding up aircraft from flying, but we didn't even know we had these parts. And it's just, to me, it was always striking to, you know, having come from after my military time, having come from private sector and, and, and witnessing how much modern industry had, had evolved um, and how even large corporations, their, their asset accountability and their ability to understand their finances. I mean, it was, it was so well advanced and you come back into the Pentagon, which is arguably doing one of the most important missions uh, for the United States government. And they couldn't do those basic things. Yeah, that so. comes out in the book uh, in, in spades and, and, and it, a huge priority for you. And of course, it wasn't your first rodeo dealing with these sorts of issues. Uh, you did this during the, the Bush administration in terms of financial uh, management. So you came into it with a sense of where the government was and, and where it was relative uh, to the private sector. Uh, yeah, and I think the, the mission itself absolutely demands that there's nothing more important. Um, my own sense is all these sorts of things are reasons to invest, to have great leadership, people with commercial, uh, you know, kind of backgrounds, understanding, uh, but with an eye towards not reforming for the sake of reform, but with an eye towards doing the core mission, in your case, in the Department of Navy, making sure you're training and equipping the Navy. Uh, and and that was a far cry in terms of what you were trying to do uh, during the Trump administration. Then uh, when you first graduated from uh, the Naval Academy, when you had the Secretary of Navy who was on his way to building uh, a fleet of 600 ships, and, and you're there and you're trying to get to this 355 plus, which was pretty much 
a, a reach um, and, 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 and something that wouldn't other be, wouldn't otherwise be realized at the same time as going back to China point, you knew exactly where the Chinese were going, going adversary or not call them competitor. Mm-hmm. They were embarking on the greatest military buildup since we saw with the Soviet union. Exactly. And you know, the, that's the challenge. And I think people didn't really understand the scope of this. And, you know, the, the Reagan buildup from the Navy's perspective was I think it's like, I think I cited the book 16 to 70%, 17% increase in the number of ships. Cause we already had a ba- fairly decent base line of ships in the Navy at the time. And we also had something like 30 shipyards that could support that effort. Okay. Um, the president ran and the Congress had put into law that we were going to get to a 355 ship Navy. And that was more like a 35% increase in the size of the Navy we have. So it's not just the ships. You have to have sailors that can crew those ships. You have to have all the training. You have to be able to operate and maintain them. And so, you know, we're seeing our budget going up by, you know, 3%, 4% a year. At best, just, at best. At best, at best. And so it was like, you know, mission impossible for us to try and do this without saying, you know, which I tried to do with the secretary of defense, like we, we need to get money from somewhere else. You know, we need to get, you know, we need to re- reprioritize and had this discussion with secretary Esper. And he said, I said, look, all I need is like five to $7 billion more in this last year to just get us going on this path. Um, so we don't have to continue to be stagnant or we don't have to continue to decommission ships. And his answer to me was, well, that's great, Tom, you know, where am I going to get the money? And I always felt that that was a rhetorical question, because if he really wanted the answer, I could have given him a whole list of things. But, you know, a lot of those things were in the army, but, you know, that's not my job. <laughs> so, and, you know, he's, he was an army guy and the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was an army guy and there was just no way that was going to happen. So um, that, that came across in your book with that uh, sketch of uh, the West Point class, which included uh, a, a few key players, Secretary Esper, Secretary Pompeo, and another very uh, influential uh lobbyist who was in the same uh same class but there's something else that yeah, you write yeah, roger i don't want to suggest there was anything nefarious going on there i mean i think this 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 was their fr- i mean they believe that that army budget needed to be what it was and there was nowhere else to go to get the money and and so okay great but you know that's this is one of those things and when you read about how how president reagan did this and how secretary layman did it i mean reagan made it very clear in multiple national security council meetings that no we're, does anyone have any questions? We're building a 600 ship Navy and, uh, and we didn't get that kind of mandate. So well, at the, at the, at the, a quote in your book, uh, and it was almost kind of wistfully, you, you, you put it in there, given the challenges you were facing leading, uh, the Navy, uh, during the Trump administration is that you write, I served as an active duty officer in the Navy when president Reagan, and the American people fully committed to rebuilding our military in order to push back against the Soviet Union. And uh, we no doubt we have a national security strategy and national defense strategy that seeks to push back against the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that is that is that is there. You know, I take your point on whether or not it's an adversary uh, or competitor, but in terms of what we're going to do about it, it is a very clearly committed to maintaining uh you know, U.S. military edge as it relates to uh, the People's Liber- Liberation Army. Um, but you don't have that commitment uh, from from leadership. And even if the American people w- would be behind it, uh, we haven't seen a president be fully committed to to doing that. No, and I think politics plays into that in a big way. Um, and, and I think that um, I, it's fine to have a strategy, you know, and you learn this in business as well. You know, you, you can pick there's a hundred different strategies you can pick, 
the ones that succeed are the ones that are led, you know, so you have to be able to, you can have a strategy, but you have to have a whole bunch of sub objectives underneath that, that are, are committed to, and the resources are given it to, to it, to make it happen. This to me, the, the growing the Navy was a very simple corollary to that overall strategy. To me, it's not that hard to explain to people, honestly, if you can just, I had this chart I used to show that showed the size of the Chinese Navy 20 years ago, and then 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, compared to our presence in the Pacific. And it's staggering when you look at it. To me, it's, it, it was a fairly simple, um, it wouldn't be that hard of a case to make. And so, but it wasn't, it wasn't made or it wasn't, it just could, other than, you know, a few people like me who would go out and talk about it. Um, it just, it just was not being made by enough people. So Tom, when you look at it and you know, the language of military superiority, military supremacy, uh, it's something that went out of fashion uh, after the cold war, because it, it was taken for granted that there really wasn't, anyone who could come close to the U.S. military. But as you just referenced, you look at the PL, the plan, right? The People's Liberation Army, you know, their Navy. Um, supremacy is not something we have when it comes to naval forces. And, uh, you know, maybe parity in some places, inferiority. Give us your, give me your take as we sit today in, in, in 2024, uh, you've been out of the job for some time, but you're still obviously close watcher and, and engaged. Uh, where would you rate the U.S. Navy up against uh, the Chinese Navy? Well, you know, those, that's a multidimensional question. Um, I think in certain theaters and in certain, certain conflicts, um, we're superior and no one can touch us, including the Chinese, including the Chinese. Um, I even think in a Taiwan scenario, um, they're they're going to have a very difficult time if in fact they do and we engage with them um, they're going to lose a lot of ships and they're going to lose a lot of people for me the challenge is uh, the sustainability of that effort for us um, both politically and uh, from an industrial based perspective as compared to theirs um, because they're a command economy because they are uh, essentially a dictatorship um, because they have so many people and now they also have a lot of shipyards and shipbuilding capacity. Um, if they get into a protracted conflict over something like this, their ability to reconstitute that force far exceeds our ability to reconstitute our force. If we start losing ships or submarines, or even if we're engaging submarines, and then they have to leave the theater to go back and get uh, rearmed, that's an advantage that they have over us over the long period of time. So uh, that to me is the greater challenge. And what makes me most concerned about that is that's not a short-term fix. Um, the, the rebuilding industrial capacity, particularly shipbuilding capacity, is uh, that's, you know, that's multi-decade type of effort uh, for Does us. Does it have to be multi-decade? I, I, I want to harp on this a little bit more. And obviously, these are themes that come up through your book and that, you know, the Force Design 2030. Uh, so feel free to, to, to bring that in because you have an outlook on this. You were thinking about these problems. This wasn't something, although it's fashionable in 2024, you know, maybe in 2022 after Russia's invasion of Ukraine for people talking about industrial capacity. Clearly, you know, you and your role uh, uh, were, were really wrestling with problems, seized by this issue uh, going back going, you know, uh, before all that, as I said, became fashionable, but there's no doubt in my mind, it is undisputable that, that when it comes to industrial capacity, clearly as it relates to uh, Navy and shipbuilding, 
Uh, the Chinese are ahead of us in a substantial way, and it's getting worse, as you just referenced, uh, as you look out into the future. Uh, and what's going to happen here is that um, whatever superiority we enjoy today, with every passing year, month, or day, right, uh, they will be closer to realizing parity and then ultimately making us inferior because that capacity is not just there for when they need it, it's being churned on a daily basis, Right. I mean, I have that wrong, or is that is that the trend that you see too? Exactly, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly my point. It's it, it is you know right now, it, who's got the best sailors and the best ships in the world? It's us. I mean, it's that's sort of indisputable. They have a lot more ships than we do. Well, maybe a hundred more ships than we do, but they don't have the capability that ours do. My question is, you know, if we get in a conflict, and you know, the trend over the last. 20, 30 years is to, for us is to concentrate more and more firepower and cost on a n smaller number of platforms. And those are economic choices that we've made um, because it just costs more to have more ships out there. Um, what we don't have now is the ability to, for example, uh, you see what's happening right now in the Red Sea. We don't have a frigate fleet that we can send out there. So who do we have to send? We have to send the aircraft carriers. Uh, we have to send destroyers, you know, four, $3 billion destroyers. We have to send, you know, what the carriers cost, something like $12 billion now, $13 billion. The cost of things, right? let's keep the Let's keep the price down on the Ford, right? That was, that was exactly. one of those. All right? Exactly. And, but, but, you know, and, and what is tying up those assets? Really, really cheap stuff that's being, you know, thrown at us uh, from relatively unsophisticated, but getting more sophisticated uh, terrorists um, or, you know, disruptors. And that ties up our resources. We don't have the ability to send out, you know, five, six small frigates out there for a billion dollars a piece or whatever they cost and manage that situation or counter their use of drones with our own. Um, the, the, the pace at which we're integrating those types of new technologies, um, drone technology, you know, unmanned systems um, to do either sensor or um, deception or even some kinetic operations. We are just woefully slow on doing anything. We're with, we're with Tom Mowgli, author of, of Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. Uh former under secretary of navy and acting secretary of navy during the trump administration uh, tom you just went through uh, a number of really important points uh, kind of riffing off of where we are today uh with the u.s navy um and dealing with the uh threat and 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 challenge posed by uh Houthi rebels in the Red Sea and, and how the U.S. Navy is responding. I want, I want to just kind of stay on that for a minute. Of course, not something addressed in the book itself, but you can read the book and get a sense of how you might address this problem, given uh, the way you were uh, leading the Navy. You know, a couple of things I'd, I'd love for you to expand upon, just based on the, the point you made a moment ago. It's a cost-imposing strategy where we're losing, right, against us, where you have Houthi rebels, you know, a Bush League kind of terrorist organization that, as you know, is getting more sophisticated in terms of weapons they have, but our counter are using even more expensive weapons, both in terms of uh, defense, and now recently the Biden administration has finally uh, pursued common sense and responded by attacking, having targeting the Houthis in, in, in Yemen, uh, so they can't attack us, but in both ways, uh, expending expensive 
uh, munitions. Uh, talk about that and talk about what the wear and tear is on an aircraft carrier to spend all that time out and uh, these from Ed and, and elsewhere uh, that wasn't planned for and how that kind of adds to the cost and, 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 and degrades the readiness of the force, which of course ties into, you know, when we might need those carriers for another scenario or to deter another scenario, of course, Taiwan coming uh, as top of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean, that's the great debate about the carrier. That's sort of linked to the great debate about the carrier in terms of how much deterrence value does it actually provide uh, against um, Houthi rebels or against terrorists or small forces that can do all kinds of things and don't really care if they die doing them um, to, to sort of disrupt normal flow of operations. And I'm not sure uh, uh, what that level of deterrence is. And I think granted we're the only really the only nation in the world that can just send a carrier to a trouble spot um and it's a show of force but i don't know i don't i don't know in the future uh what you know the efficacy of that and so one of the things that i tried to do was to have some people some smart people take a look at that question um because it's not it's a it's a cost thing it's also sort of a an impact on the idea of distributed distributed maritime operations where you can have people you can have more assets in different places um it sucks up so many resources that um it makes it it makes it uh very very difficult to to do anything else so uh for me you know you know in this current scenario i mean I'm a little distressed because a lot of the stuff that I started to do back then basically was, you know, wiped off the the department's agenda the, the day after I left, you know, um, and uh, and the current secretary has different priorities. Um, but the the carrier issue, I set up this this task force in January of 20, uh, 2020 to take a look at this because we had seven years of time before we had to make another carrier decision because we did a two carrier buy for the, for the um, enterprise and the Doris Miller, which allowed us to save about $5 billion across those programs. But it also gave us seven years where we could think about what's next. And I'm afraid we frittered away three years of that, maybe four years of that. Um, Precious time give, yeah. Yeah, given the challenge in the Pacific and of course what's played out in the Middle East, you know, despite uh, those in the Biden administration that were ready to spike the football and say, hey, you know, we have this Middle East is more stable now than it's that it's been in decades. Of course, uh, you, you, you utter that and you invite the sort of uh, security challenges we're facing today. But here's well, you a know, quote. When you hear a statement like that, you know, you you know, you, you, you kind of know where the next problem is going to come from, right? Exactly. I'm going to stick on the carrier for a second, because of course, as you think about the U.S. Navy, you know, is it a million tons of deterrence, you know, whatever it is, um, people think about the super carrier, which has done great things uh, for the U.S. military and, 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 and the peace and prosperity America's enjoyed. But of course, as you just referenced, you were thinking critically about this. And here's a quote from the book, which I'd love for you to expand upon. You say, should a new force structure dictate fewer large supercarriers and nimbler, less expensive, quote, lightning type carriers, more suited, as you referenced a moment ago, for distributed operations, right? So that means you can be in lots of different places as opposed to only being the place, you know, one place with unmanned vehicles and vertically launched aircraft that we expect to operate in the future. That was a question. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, 
what's your answer to that question today? Is it an absolutely yes? Let's get those lightning type carriers. I can make a case for that. We've heard other people, even John Lehman, his name we, we, we referenced earlier, was somebody who was a super carrier advocate throughout his career, has now, as, as, as he told me and, and has written, that he would go for a smaller type carrier. I'm not sure you call it the lightning type carrier, but, but something different than the, you know, than the super carrier. What's your answer to your question, Tom? Well, you know, Roger, I, I'd be able to answer that question a lot better if that 2030 study had continued because I would have uh, but you have smarter than I would have people smarter than me answering that question. But so I intuitively, intuitively and economically, when I look at the amount of money that we that we put into those platforms and the concentration um, that we put into those platforms and the fact that not only that, but because we're creating those platforms, they can only be built in a couple places. So it's it's gutted everything else we can do. Um, we So to me, intuitively, I think, yes, it's probably more practical over the long run uh, to have more ships that can do more things, but also integrated much more heavily with unmanned systems um, that can be cheap or disposable or the things that can really confuse uh, our adversaries. You know, you think about just a, a fleet of a hundred uh, unmanned uh, boats, some of which are sensors, some of which are decoys, some of which have kinetic capability, all flowing out from a point where they were hidden, coming out of an invasion force. And how that, the, the level of how that complicates uh, the adversary's uh, calculation uh, is immeasurable. And so we're not we're not investing fast enough in those types of things. So um, I I think and, that and, and Tom, as I listen to you talk about the the, the opportunity uh, with unmanned systems, you're you you've just articulated what that opportunity might look like for the U.S. Navy, but you know the Air Force is thinking along the same lines for their mission sets, similarly with the Army, and and I'm sure you'd agree as they should. Mm -hmm. To me. I guess the question I have, is that an and or an or, right? Uh, is it, you know, you, you could you have that and uh, have the aircraft carrier super carrier or is your assessment? No, it's, it's gotta be one or the other. Well, it's given it's trans. It depends on the realities of the budget constraints. So, I, I always talked about, and you mentioned it. Thank you. Give me, I, I always said 355 plus. I said, you know, it's a, it's a mix of traditional force, uh, whether it's 10 carriers or 12 carriers, um, you know, that's, that's up for debate. Um, but it's gotta be more than that. It's gotta be also the, and, and, a, and a lot of small ships, a lot of frigates, um, and then the integration of these unmanned systems, that's to me is what the future force should look like. Um, so, but that's a very, um, that's a, that's a resource heavy, uh, ask, uh, from the Congress and the American people. But, um, to me, I think it's necessary unless we want to retreat and, um, globally. And I think if we do that, the, the consequences will be even worse. Well, I, I agree with you on that. And, and the U S People, U.S. citizens agree with you. I mean, we, we do survey on this annually. So now we're doing it twice a year. Uh, Americans support, uh, not this is not a majority. This is a supermajority being for deployed. Uh, they understand kind of core to the mission of the U.S. Navy that being forward deployed is what guarantees peace and prosperity. It doesn't invite conflict, it prevents conflict. Uh, and it's year over year over year. And it blew my faith. It's, it's unbelievable. 65% of Americans uh, take that point of view. Uh, but as, as, as we've discussed, 
Yeah, there's but, an interesting point to that, Roger. It's not just it's not just having the forces, you know, that that threat of force out there or the the forces out there to protect sea lanes. There's something also very very important that happens when we're forward deployed, and that is that we're working and integrating with allies around the world. Um, and the more you do that, the more you develop. And I, I always, I demanded that every group of naval attaches before they got sent to their assignments, I met with them and I spoke to them and I told them, I said, this is one of the most important missions you'll ever have in the Navy, because for some of the people you're going to be working with in these countries, um, you're going to be the first American and your families are going to be the first Americans that they meet. And so the impression you make is the impression they're going to have about America as a country. And we, we have to be serious about that. We have to be, and, and so to me, the ability to interoperate with them uh, and to work with them is just as important because that we can't do it all ourselves. And we need to have a very strong uh, web of allies around the world, particularly maritime allies that we can work with uh, to secure these sea lands because everyone's dependent upon them. No, that's a great point. And, and everyone in terms of for the, for the safety and security, but also the economic uh, you know, trade and, and, and goods that we are rely upon getting there on time and at a cost that, that we can afford. Um, you know, one of the things you emphasize in your book you know, with these thunder talks, you said you, the audience you enjoyed most was kind of these civic groups. Uh, you know, you talked to lots of different groups, you know, veterans groups, you know, military groups, you, obviously there was value and purpose to all of that. Um, but it was, it was just kind of everyday Americans, my sensibility of kind of what, what you were getting at that you enjoyed when talking to those groups, if we as a country pursued a neo-isolationist outlook, one that didn't fund a Navy that was large enough to do what you've described. So by definition, we would be bringing uh, our presence home, our forward deployed presence home. What would that mean from a security standpoint? What would that mean from an economic standpoint? How do you explain that during one of your thunder talks? Well, fortunately, um, most of the people that I spoke to um, probably reflected the uh, the positive perception number that you gave me. Um, yeah, you know, there were there were obviously concerns about for you know being in war all the time, um, particularly people with young children who were concerned about their children having to go to war. And you know, this is a real problem. Also, that I talk about in the book. You know, after nine eleven, um, we have you know sailors and marines. Um, particularly the special operators who've been at war for 20, who had been at war for like 20 years, you know, constantly going back and forth and trying to reintegrate into society. And, um, you know, if you've ever seen the film American Sniper, you, you, you get that sense where, you know, he comes back and he's just not comfortable at home anymore because he's, you know, it's just too different from what he's experiencing there in theater. Um, there's another movie that I saw that really did a great job of showing this. It was the one about the guy who was the EOD uh, specialist, uh, Jeremy Renner played him. And I think he comes home between one of his deployments and he's standing in a grocery store. Do you remember this scene? And he's just looking at all the choices, you know, all the different things all stacked up neatly. And it was such a par it was such a paradox to what you know what he was seeing every day over there, and I think there's I think a lot of people were concerned about that, and and I'm concerned about that um, because you you can't sustain it's really difficult to sustain that that level of um, of I think immersion and violence and risk um, 
for that amount of time. So th those were the kinds of things that I would hear from people. But generally speaking, um, most people s saw the Navy as this sort of global force for good that could be out there and should be out there doing doing these things. Um, so um, I didn't get a lot of resistance to what I was what I was saying in that regard. Well, you know, one other item in the book, uh, kind of where we started, uh, your family history and 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 Hungary, as you referenced it, and kind of. It, talk about that just for a moment then we'll go to our, our lightning round and again we're with tom thomas modley author of vectors go on amazon you can uh order and purchase the book and and read this very interesting memoir uh and 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 really deep sophisticated thinking about what we need to do uh to maintain you know, from my perspective uh military superiority uh and 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 a strong navy um you have this great picture in there of the Reagan statue, uh, Budapest and uh, the parliament. Wrap this into a more um, kind of broader sensibility of what we're trying to do uh, with our forward presence, with America's military, uh, and impact it could have on, on geopolitics uh, and, and, and US, US interests, and perhaps through the lens of the way you look at uh, your own family history and, 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 and Hungary. Yeah, I think I sort of touched on it briefly when I talked about um, how important it was, I felt, for us and for our naval attaches and all the other forces that we had that interacted with other countries and met people from other countries. Um, our greatest strength, I think, in the generation that we grew up, uh, particularly sort of that post-war generation, and um, and really, I think, it sort of accelerated in the 80s under President Reagan, is the perception that people had of the country. Um as a place that where people are good, generally good people um, who cared about freedom and uh, were friendly and wanted to be friends. Um, and I heard, some, I can't, I wish I could attribute this to somebody, but and I can't remember who told me this, but we're, we're having this discussion about dogs and how certain dogs represent the cultures of their country. So, you know, the French have the French poodle and it's, you know, it's a little, you know, sophisticated <laughs> and airy and snobby and the, the British have the bulldog, you know, that's right. kind of rough and gruff and, you know, kind of Winston Churchill esque. And he, he said, but not particularly said, athletic or mobile. <laughs> yeah, he said that the, <laughs> you said that I didn't, uh, um, he said that the Americans are like the golden retriever that just comes in and like running through the room, wagging its tail, knocking over the vase. And, you know, you know, that's not a bad reputation to have, you know, that we're friendly and we're good. Sometimes we, 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 we mess things up, um, but not intentionally, um, because no country's perfect, but, um, so to, so to me, I think that's, that's one of the most important things that the Navy can, that the Navy does is, um, it, it helps perpetuate that, that view of America around the world as people that are there to protect the people that are there that aren't there looking for a war, not looking there to conquer, to conquer anything, um, but to sustain peace and uh cooperation between nations and um so i i don't know any other s service in the u.s military that that does that so actively on a daily basis uh than the navy does well you were uh giving us a churchill reference that's a good opportunity to pivot to some reagan references here we'll go to the lightning round where we ask all our guests to give us their favorite reagan speech quote and book we'll take all three two or uh, one whatever you got 
All right. Well, I'm, I'm not going to act like I'm doing this off the top of my head. Your, your, your trusty assistant gave me a heads up on this one. So I appreciate <laughs> you, you caught me flat footed. Um, well, so uh, favorite quote, um, I'd have to say, um, one of the things that I just really admired about President Reagan was his sense of humor. And I talk a lot about sense of humor in my book and how important that is uh, to people. And he, one of my favorite jokes that he tells is the one about uh, the Democratic platform, which I'm sure you're familiar with uh, when he's giving his speech out in, in some farm. And, and people can go look that one up. I won't say that one. But uh, <laughs> he, he does he does tell one about uh, that he used, to, he used to like making jokes about the Soviet Union. And um, I think that that was just, I think that it was just so uh, brilliant for him to do that um, because they weren't, they weren't nasty. They weren't mean. They were just sort of um, uh, observational uh, critiques. Uh, but, but subtly subversive also, huh? I'm sorry? Subtly subversive too. Yes, like you really exactly. They're very subtle. So my favorite one is the one where he says, uh, he says a story about uh, a man in the Soviet Union stands in line to buy a car. He plunks down the money for his new car, and the person in charge says, come back in 10 years to pick up your car. And the buyer says, uh, morning or afternoon? And the, the clerk says, well, it's 10 years from now. Does it really matter? And the person says, yes, because the plumber's scheduled to come in the morning. So, <laughs> and that's just, you know, that's, you know. My parents had to sort of deal with that. They lived that, that, that scarcity uh, in these countries. And uh, so that one to me was just always great. I mean, I, you don't see that. You don't see our political leaders doing that, you know, sort of ribbing uh, our adversaries. They're, you know, it, we, it, during the Cold War, we were, we were kind of like two scorpions in a glass, right? Just, you know, kind of facing each other off. So how do you make that bearable? Um, and I think he understood how to make it bearable, you know, by uh, yeah, no doubt. the humor, the humor was unique and, and, and I, I think you're right. It was, it was meaningful. Yeah. So favorite speeches, I have two and, and, and these two, two speeches, uh, to me are sort of the, I mean, they, they literally are the bookends of his career in, in national, uh, public service. And the one was the, from the time to choosing speech in 1964, um, where, and and in that speech, he also just throws in this great line about the Democrats and liberals, where he said, uh, well, the trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't true, uh, which is, <laughs> I mean, just the way he said it and the way he delivered that. And that was a very, that was a very, very serious speech. Um, and it sort of set the tone for what he was going to pursue over the next, you know, 15, 16 years in his, his Go on YouTube. Everybody hasn't seen it. You could see president Reagan at the time to citizen Reagan deliver that speech in support of Barry Goldwater back in 64. All right. So you said bookends. That was the first one. And then what's the, what's the, what's the other end? Okay. So the, his farewell address, obviously. That's a great uh, speech. Yeah, it's a great speech. And uh, he really talks a lot about this this thing about shared memories that I talked to you about, about the country. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read this section. If Do I have time? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Yo, you got it. We'll wrap up okay. with it. We'll wrap up with this. Take it away, Tom. Okay. So uh, he said, but I do have to give you my favorite book too. But um, uh, he said, but now we're about to enter the 90s and some things have changed. Now think about this. This is 30 years ago. Um, Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. <laughs> And as those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. Our spirit is back, but we haven't reinstitutionalized it. We've got to do a better job of getting across that America's freedom, the America's freedom 
freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. It's fragile. It needs product. It needs protection. So I would say to our us as citizens, you know, how well have we done on that? Um, and I'm not sure we've done a great job. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, uh, well said. And so favorite book, uh, Reagan with Reagan references is Vectors: Heroes, Villains, and Heartbreak. I'm <laughs> Um, I talk a lot about President Reagan in the book, and particularly the the statue in uh, uh, in Hero Square uh, or near Hero Square down there in, in Budapest, which I saw again this summer, and it's it's uh, very striking. Tom Moley, thank you for being on the show. Okay, thanks, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.